Good evening and welcome to From the Frontline. I'm Hunter Combs in the studio once again with Dr. Peter Hammond. And tonight we're asking the question, are you ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice? Peter, where does this quote come from and what's significant about the 14th of December? 14th of December is seriously important. It's the anniversary 27 years ago of the most disastrous series of events in our mission's history. We lost our missionary Anthony Duncan killed in a head-on collision the 14th of December 1994. Hmm. The quote, a missionary must be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice, comes from Francis Grimm of Hospital Christian Fellowship. The first mission I worked for, in fact, the first mission I ever heard of, the first missionary I ever heard, Francis Grimm, Hospital Christian Fellowship, he came past our church in 1978, and he gave a powerful missions message. I immediately went forward uh, applied to join his mission, went through the selection process. And Francis Grimm would say to us at different times, a missionary must be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. I think that just epitomizes so much what we call to. And I was reminded that that's why bishops historically have worn red or purple um, uh, shirts because hmm. uh, symbolizing the blood of the martyrs that a bishop in fact, bishops were killed at a rate of something like four times more than the average Christian in the Roman Empire. Wow. And that uh, if you were to be a bishop, a shepherd of souls, a pastor, you had to be ready to die for Christ. Mm. And um, I, I think a lot of the bishops today might have forgotten that. Mm. Yeah, in fact, just as a side note, it also was a lifelong commitment if you were to be a bishop. So after a bishop would take up his bishopric, he would go into a time of mourning because you realize this is a serious calling. This is the rest of my life. I'm, in a sense, sort of married to this church until death do we part. So it wasn't this sort of, oh, I'll be here for a couple of years and I'll move on to another church. It's, you're here for good. Yeah, <laughs> not, we bury you here. not just un until I get discouraged or disappointed or somebody hurts my feelings. Mm, absolutely. So can you share with us a bit more what happened 27 years ago as uh, there was a mission going into Angola? Um can you share a bit more? Yeah, just oh. what took place. You you said it was one of the most disastrous events that has taken place in Frontline, um, but yeah, maybe just share a bit more about that story about Anthony and yes. uh, how this all so, went about and took place. Nineteen ninety four, Frontline sent four teams into the field, four vehicles, and that was quite a lot for us at that time. Uh, I mean, this was maximum mobilization. We didn't have one full time worker back in Cape Town. We had a few. Uh, volunteers who'd done a couple of camps who were running the office in our absence back at home, um, all in their teens, basically. <laughs> and uh, uh, all of us were in the field. And um, so four vehicles went into the field. Only one vehicle came back. Mm. In the, uh, it, it was such a complex series of missions to five countries. And um, Anthony was one of the team, and he actually had quite a complex uh, uh, assignment he first had to deliver a vehicle that we were donating to a mission in Zambia. So he drove up and mm. he had Bible deliveries to do in Zimbabwe. He had ministry to do in uh, Zambia. Uh, and then he had to go uh, through uh, Botswana and, and Southwest Africa, Namibia then, um, into Angola, uh, delivering more medicines, part of another team. So um, he was actually in five countries, and we had different wow. teams. I was up in Zambia running a bibl biblical worldview seminar, 
in the Kenneth Gohunda High School. Uh, yeah. Bill Bathman was part of it too. He flew up to Zambia and he was ministering on radio and at uh, key events to meeting cabinet ministers. It was really complex, but probably the most important and dangerous part of this whole series was breaching the blockade into Angola. Now, mm. Angola communist country uh, since 1975, civil war uh, raged since 1961, uh, millions of people either killed or injured in, and crippled in, in that mm. hideous war. There were more landmines in Angola than people uh, back in 1994. There's less than 10 million people and there's something like 12 million landmines in the country. So, as we called it, landmines are the national plant of Angola. It was, <laughs> it was bad. So uh, in 1988, uh, the Cold War had come to an end. Uh, the uh, Cuban Meknaz divisions had been decimated on the field. Mm. You can still see the uh, absolute graveyard of armored cars and tanks and shot down MiGs. And it, it's mm. uh, you can Google Earth, Lomba River, and actually still see them. They're still there. They're not, they're not moving anywhere. They're mm. rusting. But uh, you could see the where the Cold War had its final climactic uh, hot mm. battle. Um, at the Battle of the Lomba River, where South African Defence Force uh, wiped out the Cuban divisions that were mm. sending against us. But uh, the Cubans had left. Angola had its first free elections. Uh, I use the word free very loosely <laughs> in italics and commas. Uh, in 1992, under the UN, and during these, this free election, free and fair election, 10,000 supporters of the UNITA uh, opposition party were killed mm. in three days in Luanda, the capital, um, including the vice presidential candidate, Jeremiah Chichunda, uh, wow. the, murdered, uh, shot in the head execution style with his hands tied behind his back in front of his United Nations bodyguards, which, you know, you know, what good are they? Uh, and for some reason, UNITA didn't accept the results of this election as free and fair. Uh, <laughs> they'd never been given a list of candidates uh, or uh, even where all the voting stations were that didn't have observers in most of the places. It, it was a mess. There was, mm. uh, there was a lot of chaos. And, and even though UNITA controlled about 80% of the territory, uh, they didn't win the election. And, of course, with a massacre of so many of their supporters during the elections, they had the audacity to say that this wasn't a free and fair election. So the United Nations put sanctions on the UNITA-controlled Free Angola, hmm. which is most of Angola, actually, and especially Kowanda Kabanga province in the south West, southeast of Angola, where we did a lot of work. And so they were under total blockade. No one allowed it, not the Red Cross, not Medicine Sans Frontiers, Doctors Without Borders, nothing. No bullets, no bombs, no bandages, no medicines, nothing allowed in. They were in total uh, blockade. And this was a United Nations enforced shoot and sight blockade of free Angola because they wouldn't accept the free and fair elections of 1992. <laughs> now, during this time, we were the only mission going into Angola. That's what we were told by the churches and clinics that we went to. So we were delivering medicines, we were delivering Bibles, mm. books, a whole lot of things, and it was very needed. But uh, Angola uh, was trying to enforce this blockade. So, of course, it was dangerous to get in there. Well, uh, in Namibia the planned People's Liberation Army of Namibia plan, uh, mm. now the, the Namibian Defense Force, uh, were uh, patrolling the border trying to enforce the United Nations blockade. So we had to be a little crafty about how we got in. The team got in, delivered the ton of Bibles, medicines, uh, a lot of rejoicing. On the way out, the team were ambushed by the mm. Namibian Defense Force, um, wow. uh, fired on them from both sides. Uh, the team was arrested uh, by God's grace, they weren't 
seriously injured. They were put in a hellhole of disease-ridden and filthy mm. uh, cockroach-ridden, flea-ridden, mosquito-ridden cells, overcrowded, uh, no sanitation, ghastly. I mean, the food mm. was just uh, slop and uh, pretty bad conditions. And, of course, the team suffered what you'd expect, dysentery and all this in, mm. in those conditions. And uh, uh, now I was in, uh, and the vehicle was written off. Uh, we never got the vehicle back. Uh, so, well, at least the team had succeeded in their primary mission of delivering those things. But mm. I'm now given some crypto message from our 18-year-old who's running the mission back in Cape Town um, to phone the mission back in Cape Town. Now, that's quite a task in 1994. That's pre-cell phones. We didn't have any satellite phone, anything like this. So I'm thinking, where can I find a phone? Well, the phone at the Kenneth Kohinda High School didn't work. And um, so I had a ministry later that day at the Zambian National Broadcasting, ZNBC. Hmm. I thought, well, they've got to have a phone there. So after, after my radio and TV, I asked to, to make phone calls. I said, sorry, all of our phones have been cut off for non-payment of telephone bills. The national TV and radio broadcasters don't have a working phone. It became quite a mission to find a working phone in Lusaka mm. that I could phone back and find what's gone on. And yeah, our team, the, the team's locked up in Namibia, up in the Caprivi Strip. And uh, well, to show the timing of this, and now, of course, I'm juggling a biblical worldview seminar, um, yeah. juggling around, but yeah, still, we had a vehicle. So and this is in Namibia they're locked up. Is yes. this by the Angolan? No, they're not locked up by the Angolans. They're locked up by the Namibians for crossing the border illegally into Angola. Oh, okay. okay. But now I'm in Zambia, and by God's grace and coincidence, would you know it, there was a peace talk conference being hosted by the vice president of Zambia at that time, General Godfrey Miander, who was a friend of mine because he had been in the same prison cell as me, Lusaka Central Prison, uh, as a presidential detainee back in the 1980s. Well, now he's vice president of Zambia, and he's chairing this peace talks between the UNITA Freedom Fighters of Angola, the anti-communist mm. uh, freedom fighters, and the MPLA, that's the so-called government uh, regime of, of Angola, uh, who just lost the Cuban and Soviet backers, so they mm. were having to... Um, negotiate now with the opposition on the ground in, in Angola and to bring about peace, which was to everyone's benefit, Zambia was hosting this. So when I got word to General Godfrey Miando about this, he let them know, these talks are over, it goes no further until these missionaries are released. Hmm. So I think said, well, it's none of our business. I mean, it's Namibia that's locked them up. <laughs> and he said, they're your allies, get it seen to. And they did. So hmm. after only three days in our Missionaries were let free. Wow. So praise God for that. So that, that was a great quick answer to prayer, God's provision. We get back to our Biblical Worldview Summit. Uh, as we concluding it, the word now comes again from Rashenda down in Cape Town. Um, this teenager who's uh, trying to run our office in our absence. Uh, you could just imagine the stress for them. Uh, that uh, uh, Anthony's died, head-on collision. Oh. Uh, somewhere up on the N7 uh, coming south from Namibia uh, in the early hours of the morning that hit a vehicle head-on collision in the, in the morning mist uh, while they were, um, uh, I think it was a Mercedes or something was trying to overtake a big long Pentechnican. Mm. And so it was on the wrong side of the road. They had nowhere to go. They had a truck on one side mm. and uh, uh, they hit this this vehicle and, um, and Anthony was killed instantly. And our vehicle 
caught a flame immediately. Uh, the fire extinguisher put out the blaze pretty quickly, but Anthony was dead on impact. And now there's logistical complications because on the way up to Namibia, another team uh, that was driving the vehicle that now Anthony was coming back in, but not the vehicle that he had driven up in because that yeah, been donated been to the group in Zambia. This vehicle, on the way up through Namibia back in 1990s, you still had the Golden Highway through Caprivas, this dirt strip. It was called mm. the Golden Highway as a joke. It was, um, it was one dirt strip. And because it was so often busy with trucks and because there's no wind up there most of the time, this, the dust would just stand there. And so you sometimes couldn't see a few car lengths ahead. Mm. And people would get tired of standing behind these slow-moving trucks and they try and overtake. And of course, you couldn't see Ed. And so head-on collisions happened. Mm. Well, the team on the way up very unwisely tried to overtake in this near zero visibility, suddenly saw an oncoming vehicle and to avoid being hit, left the road and catapulted, capsized. They rolled oh, over and over and over. And, and the, <laughs> the canopy on the back of the pickup truck was shattered. Fiberglass finished, kaput, gone, can't be used again. Now, this is the rainy season up there, by the way. We're talking about December uh, is the rainy season up in Central Africa. So all the Bibles and books in the back, real problems, not enough canopy to cover it. They had to get quite creative. But uh, uh, this was the problem that on the way back down, this is the only vehicle left because the Land Rover's been uh, destroyed, uh, the um, other vehicle's been donated, and now this one, no canopy on the way back. Anthony, on the way back from Angola, decided to stop at Tosha Pan Game Reserve because he had been a game ranger. Hmm. And he had come to Christ, uh, led to Christ by a friend, Michael, and fellow game ranger in Tosha Pan. So he went up the copy little hill where he had been converted and he had a prayer time as the sun set. And as he came down, his backpack was gone, stolen, because there's no hmm. canopy to... to protects what's in the back of the bucky. And so he literally, all he had was his Bible and the clothes he's standing in. Mm. Um, I mean, that's, and, and, and he didn't own a lot. You could have fitted everything he owned in a backpack and a, a bit of a trommel, a, a trunk, but that was it. So uh, Anthony gets in a vehicle and they drive through the night and he doesn't see the sunrise because uh, that's the last sunset he saw because mm. he, he went straight through the night to get to um, uh, back to South Africa. Extraordinary testimony because hmm. you know, Anthony he had faced life threatening situations before. He is in the army, um, and he had survived contacts there. He is a game ranger, uh, and he was as a game ranger in charge of the tracking, uh, anti poaching tracking unit. And uh, with a, armed with a bolt action rifle, he had gunfights with terrorists and poachers who had AK 47s and won. Wow. He was trampled into the mud by a rhino that he was working the rhino protection, rhino uh, relocation uh, unit. And uh, the mud um, around this waterhole was fortunately soft. And so he just uh, got uh, submerged mm. in the mud and didn't break <laughs> any bones. But another time he was driving down the road and he saw a herd of elephants. He reversed back, almost bumped into another herd of elephants behind, uh, which is obviously a very big herd. And they were very angry and he had to do some serious driving to get out of there alive. Another occasion, uh, he had to ward off an attack by two lions. Now, two lions were running at him. He put down his rifle 
Now, he had a revolver in his belt. He had a rifle in his hand. He put down a rifle and threw stones at them to deflect the attack because, like myself, he was a serious animal lover and had quite the soft spot. Animals, he didn't yeah. want to hurt the lion. I mean, these magnificent lions. So, but, I mean, think of having to face a charge by two lion and just to use stones to deflect the attack. Uh, and, but it worked. I mean, he lived to talk about it. He once came off as an 1,100cc motorbike into a melee field. He was going 160 kilometers an hour. Oh, That's word. about 100 miles an hour. And and he survived. So we said he had more lives than a cat. And uh, he certainly lived those lives to the full. Mm, wow. So when he when he got in the accident, was anyone else in the vehicle with him? Yes. Uh, Farney was the driver at the time. They'd been taking turns and... Uh, Anthony was actually asleep at the moment of impact. I mean, it was early hours of the morning. They're driving through the night, something we don't uh, recommend. Yeah, do. And recently, we've, you know, after that, we said we shouldn't be driving through the night. I'm afraid to say I've often driven through the night. And I can say with shame that I've fallen asleep at the wheel before. Mm. Um, and I've woken up uh, careering into oncoming traffic. And, you know, by God's grace, I didn't have any accidents. But but it's very, very bad when, when you're so tired and you've, Worked through the night and night after night. You've had just a short little bit of catnap here. And uh, after a while, you're burning candle yeah, both ends. So it's dangerous. highly irresponsible. But but you, the team was debilitated from sickness. They were uh, exhausted from everything they'd gone through. Um, they were in a rush to get home. We can identify. But that's when accidents can happen. Mm. Yeah, I remember. I think, well, it's one thing to drive at night in sort of a more a European country or Western country with better infrastructure. I mean, you still can fall asleep, crash, but to drive at night in Africa is even more dangerous. I think the only, one of the few times I, one of the first times I saw a dead body was we were driving in the night into Zimbabwe and we were coming up on the road and we saw these, everyone's emergency lights on either side of the road. And as we got closer and closer, stopped right in front of us was a big truck or a semi truck and wrapped around the front was a small bucky. And there was just, the driver was dead looking in. So we were just looking into this car, into this little bucky with the driver dead. It clearly somehow got wrapped around the front of this truck. And it was just (laughs) a horrifying sight. I mean, but in Africa, the driving isn't the best. And driving at night, it makes it a hundred times worse and so much more dangerous. And also what I think most people in other countries may not uh, understand is vast amounts of goats, sheep, in some places, camels, um, cows wandering across roads. You get all kinds of, of wildlife wandering across the roads. And then you get people, and people generally dressed in dark clothing. Mm. No bicycles without retroreflectors and yeah. without lights. And uh, there's so much that's dangerous. And then you've got potholes. So what mm. can happen is uh, to avoid this pothole, to hear cars, uh, trucks coming at speed, they swerve into your lane mm-hmm. to avoid the pothole. And <laughs> I've before had to just go off the road. Uh, to avoid an oncoming truck. And, of course, I didn't know what I could end up in a culvert, mm. ditch, anything, but just just had to – because no chance. You know, you either take a head-on collision or you or take you, a chance yeah, with what's exactly. inside the road. And uh, amazing things can happen. I mean, one of our chaps, Johan, took one of our buckies flying, literally sailing through the air because to avoid a tractor around the corner, he had to go off and it was a raised road and Oof. he literally was – just sailing through the air for quite a while before they came to, <laughs> you know, gravity does its job. So, yes, we have to be really careful. The other thing is you often, because an oncoming car long distance, you dip your headlights. Of course, forget streetlights. There's no streetlights in most of these areas. And you dip your lights. And if you dip your lights too soon, 
a herd of cows can come between the two of you without knowing it. And we've also had that happen too, where um, you dip your lights too soon and uh, you don't notice what suddenly come in the road between your two vehicles. And so there's a lot of reasons why one shouldn't drive at night in these conditions. And we certainly shouldn't when we're exhausted. Yeah, absolutely. So this was quite a traumatic mission. This isn't one your typical mission. Hey, let's go do this. This is very complex, lots of moving parts and then vehicle after vehicle having run-in issues, being thrown in prison to now having one of your missionaries die in the field. I mean, this must have been quite a nightmare for you as, well, yes, <laughs> as and the director of this ministry. So I had the only vehicle left out of four um, and we were in Lusaka and this is a single um, a single canopy, uh, a, a single cab bucky. So there are only well, one bench in front, so you could fit three people in front. Now, um, we had a trailer as well because we've taken a lot of literature up. So I'm, I'm coming back with a trailer, and we've got to divert uh, the bucky I was dealing with, which is only a 1600 diesel, hmm. not a very powerful engine anyway. I mean, when you're going up hills with a trailer, you're down to second gear, sometimes first gear. Plowing along. There were times I was going up a hill at 20 kilometers an hour and think this is unbelievable. Oh, my word. Um, but, and there's quite a lot of hills uh, in Zambia and Zimbabwe. But uh, we were on our way back and having to pick up the survivors and the wreckage. And, uh, and we ended up with seven people in this bucky with an extra trailer on the roof rack. So on the roof rack, we had a trailer upside down. Oof. We were towing a trailer, had that, and we had three people up front, and we had four in the back of the pickup truck. So it was not ideal. And uh, and then there's all the logistics of getting the body back to Cape Town, uh, going through our mail list, who do we know in this area closest that could help, and, and our injured uh, person, um, getting him from the hospital. And so there was all these, and then, I mean, the worst uh, duty any mission director can ever have, to phone the parents and inform them that their son has died. Oh, mm. traumatic. And what I didn't know um, was that uh, Anthony's parents were divorced and neither was walking with the Lord and his brother and sister were not walking with the Lord at mm. that time. And I had his initial um, route that he is taking, which I was, I was going to send him up the N7A1 through Namibia, um, but then I sent him last minute through Transvaal, there was some extra literature you could pick up in Pretoria and then go through Botswana into Zimbabwe and so on. So uh, when he went through Transvaal, that's where his family was. So he mm. stopped off and he spoke to his father, his mother, his brother, his sister, and challenged him about the walk of the Lord. Mm. Now, I only know this because at his funeral, they all testified how, mm. you know, his last words were that they had to get right with God and... Uh, mm. And they did at, at the funeral. And wow. uh, many people came to the Lord through his testimony because while I would trust that we're all ready uh, to meet the Lord, Anthony was actually eager. Hmm. And he he was the most spiritually minded of all of us in the mission. And and he even spoke things like that he knew he wouldn't reach 30 years old. And uh, he didn't know if he'd die in the field or or if the Lord would come, but uh, mm. the fact is he or come or call, but but uh, he felt his time was short. And he was he didn't have much. I mean, he'd given away so much. He, his earthly possessions was nothing really to divide up afterwards because uh, he had nothing. Uh, he mm. lived a very simple, uh, he took the words of the scripture very seriously, you know, leave everything, follow me. Mm. And so with all of us, we we, uh, we looked at this, thought, you know, he really was 
not just the most ready of all of us. He is the most enthusiastic of all of us to go to be with the Lord. Mm. And uh, it was it was a remarkable testimony, and I think it all shook everybody up. And oh. only one life it will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Mm. Wow, and that the Lord used that to bring his mm. family to himself. I mean, yeah. Yeah. you really see a practical outworking of the verse that, we know that for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, God causes all things to work together for good. And so, I mean, how the Lord orchestrated that, even that his family would come to faith. Wow. Yes. Uh, now, my father-in-law, Bill Bethany, was part of the team uh, in Zambia. He wrote the book Angola by the Back Door mm-hmm. on the, the team, the trip, the trouble, and the eventual tragedy as the subtitle. And uh, in this, he focuses heavily on Anthony's uh, testimony, and, uh, and he's got... Uh, picture of him on the back cover too and a lot of the details but here's how he summarized it Anthony had always traveled light he never collected a lot of material possessions all his worldly possessions could be stowed neatly in a backpack he was a generous person who gave away everything he did not need we cannot take our possessions with us when we die Anthony is the one person I know who actually had no possessions to take with him when he died mm-hmm. he died literally with his boots on but he did not leave an extra pair behind what Anthony did leave behind cannot be measured in earthly value. Hmm. Wow, what an amazing testimony, what an amazing legacy of someone who loved the Lord, who was eager to be with the Lord. And I think what we really hope and hope for those listening is that maybe the Lord's stirring in your heart. Are you eager to live for Christ, to give your life for Christ? Are you ready and willing to jump out and be involved in the Great Commission. So what can we learn from from this testimony, from this, both the bad things that happened in the field, but also uh, the good the good things that came about from this? What can we well, learn from this? certainly we should be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice because mm-hmm. God calls us, is this an adventure of discipleship? And we're told to take up a cross, to deny ourselves, to forsake the world, to mm. follow Christ. And, and that, that's an ongoing challenge of discipleship. And, yeah. and the Great Commission should be our supreme ambition. So I look at this and I think uh, as a mission leader, um, I had to look at did we have enough safety mechanisms and we start to make more rules about you know not driving through the night and so on and so forth to try and prepare our people better. Uh, we looked at, you know, the vehicle did have a bull bar, but uh, it, mm. for a head-on collision that, didn't make a difference. Literally got shaved off as this vehicle came in. The mm. speed, you can imagine. Head-on collisions are, are pretty bad. Uh, some vehicles are safer. I mean, this, this was a little 1400 pickup truck, Bucky, mm. little little vehicle. Um, it's not as big and strong as some of our other four-wheel drives that we've got around. But still, there's dangers on the road. And do you know, statistically, the greatest danger of missionaries in our time is vehicle accidents. Mm. Uh, and I, I think many people seem to think, you know, the biggest danger in missions is snakes and uh, <laughs> malaria or uh, lions or something. No, no, no. And forget crocodiles and hippos. The, the biggest danger is vehicles, vehicle accidents. Uh, I had only just joined Hospital Christian Fellowship, first mission I worked in. And uh, the word came through that Operation Mobilization had just lost the entire team in Sudan. One vehicle accident. Mm. The team leader, all of them, in one combi, uh, like a, a little van, and on the mountains in the center of, of um, Sudan, it left the road, rolled down, and they lost the entire team. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a restricted access country. There's no files. There's no uh, – all the contacts were in the minds of the, the mm-hmm. team that was lost. They lost the entire 
OM team for sedan in one vehicle accident. Wow. And those sort of things can happen. And and we've got to remind ourselves of that when we get in a vehicle, we should be serious. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, if there's ever a time to pray, um, starting any journey is is always a good time to pray. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think we should be much more alert. And one of the problems we've got today is because of cell phones and so on, we can mm-hmm. be awfully distracted. You should not be on your cell phone while driving. You should mm-hmm. and. Texting. There are people who text while driving, for mm. goodness sakes. I mean, uh, so we should be really, we should take seriously the fact that vehicles are traveling at high speeds and uh, you're on dangerous roads and there's so much that's unpredictable. We can't afford to be distracted. Mm. And a parent should remind themselves of that too. You know, you've got kids in the back seat and you can easily be looking over your shoulder and look where you're going. You're going to go where you're looking. You've got mm. to keep alert. And, and in the vehicles as well, if you've got too much that's distracting you, uh, you, your reaction time's affected. And of course, if you're too tired. So there's a lot of reasons why um, I produced the book, Security and Survival Handbook, because we've lost missionaries in the field. Uh, many missions have for different reasons, but vehicle accidents are the single greatest threat to life, which means we should put a lot more energy and time into our focus. And when we're on the road, it's very serious. It's, it's not just your life at stake, it's, it's other people and animals running on the road and so on. So uh, I, I do think that's one of the things we need to learn. It did make us improve our rules. and But there's several levels we've got to learn from a spiritual side and we need to learn mm. from a practical side. Mm. Yes, yeah, so what would what would some of those spiritual um, lessons be from that from that mission? Yes, so, so the one thing is to preach every time as though it's the last time you'll preach or the last time you hear us may hear you. I, I remember being challenged by that by Reverend Roger Vogue that uh, every ministry opportunity you should take seriously. You don't know if you're going to get more and you don't know if the person you're ministering to is going to have another opportunity. Uh, imagine if Anthony had said, you know, there's going to be an awkward conversation. Um, I don't really feel comfortable challenging my parents or my hmm. elder brother or something. Uh, if, if, he'd, if he'd missed that opportunity, he wasn't going to get another opportunity. Hmm. And uh, so it is with us. We will so regret if we, if we uh, think, you know, I'll have another opportunity. You don't know that you're going to get another opportunity yeah. for almost any ministry. So to live every day to the fullest, to use every opportunity, to seize the moment, carpe diem, I think spiritually also to keep um, short accounts. If there are people that you need to forgive, people you need to make right with, restitution needs to be made, uh, to do it quickly because if we put it off, oh, Mm. Procrastination is a thief of time and a grave of opportunity. Mm. Absolutely, yeah. That we're constantly thinking of being heavenly minded, of what what is coming next. Are we ready each and every day to go and be with the Lord? So we have some good resources. You talked about the Security and Survival Handbook. Um, what are some other um, resources that we can sort of point people towards? Well, um, of course, Operation World is the premier. Uh, intercessory handbook for missions that we know about the countries, we know about the needs, we know about the uh, answers to prayer, uh, and also other ministries or missions that are working in that country or specialist missions that may have resources that will empower us to be more effective, like gospel recordings and the Jesus Film Project or Missionary Aviation Fellowship. I mean, there's, there's groups that actually serve all missions that we can all benefit from. So I think Operation World is, is really absolutely vital. And they've got the website too. You can go on to Opworld. Uh, .org and uh, benefit from a lot of country reports and insights. From our mission side, we've been designing and continually updating our Great Commission course. So the Great Commission course, which dates back to 1998, and 19, 1998, we 
start our first GCC. And every year we try to train people interested in missions, body, mind, and spirit. So it's a practical, We what prepares people for missions? It's not just a whole lot of information we need and inspiration and intercession. There's some practical skills, but there's also perseverance and ability to keep going and to be um, able to withstand the dangers, hmm. the discouragements, the uh, distractions. There's so many things that are uh, diseases uh, hmm. to, to be wise in how we can recognize and recover uh, more effectively. So I think anyone who's interested in missions, whether part-time, short-term or long-term, uh, attending missionary training programs. Now, you may know of others in your area, but what we're organizing is the Great Commission course, which has attracted people from pretty far and wide. We've We've had people coming to our Great Commission courses from as far afield as New Zealand and Australia and Canada and all over Europe and North America and all of Africa from Nigeria and Ghana and uh, from Sudan and Zambia and Rwanda and Burundi and uh, Tanzania, Kenya. Uh, it's, it's a magnificent opportunity to meet with other missionary-minded people and to prepare ourselves. And, and this isn't a conference our Great Commission course is Body, Mind, Spirit. And if you go on our website, uh, you will see the boots, laced up boots, because um, it, it involves a lot of hiking, a lot of PT, a lot of practical, and mm. not just nice hiking in the daytime, <laughs> but night hikes, and not just walking um, with your water bottle, uh, but with backpacks of Arabic scriptures, because let's face it, you don't go to a mission field uh, just to be a tourist. We've got to take literature with us. So mm. uh, weight training, it's always good. And... Uh, our PT, it's practical. Our, our practicals involve getting out in the streets, getting into Muslim areas, interacting with people, uh, helping people to know how best to evangelize. First of all, way of the master, evangelism explosion, but then Muslim evangelism, understanding secular worldviews, how to reach people in New Age, Hinduism, and so on. So uh, there's a range of, of skills that we try to uh, teach. There's a range of... Um, Attitudes we seek to address because put people under pressure, hmm. a lot of pressure, less sleep, more work, and there's written assignments, and there's, which is the way missions often is. That you've got meetings, you've got outreach, you've got commitments, you've got to travel, uh, but you've also got to write these things and you've got to respond to that. And so uh, we're challenging people. Assignments include preparing a Bible study and a sermon and a country report, and all while there's no time really allocated for it. You've just got to <laughs> fit it in while you're juggling other things. And... Um, Many people find this three weeks of the Great Commission course to be very life-transforming and uh, a real blessing. And some said, this is the best camp, best conference I've ever been to. And, um, so the Great Commission course, uh, we are planning one in this upcoming January from the 6th to the uh, 23rd of uh, – 6th to the 26th of uh, January. 6th to 26th of January, uh, 2022, the next Great Commission course. If you're interested in missions – if you're interested in being involved in cross-cultural ministry in your own area, um, you'll find us a challenge, a help, and you'll be empowered. We provide a lot of great resources and friendships that last for a lifetime. Mm. And I remember when I came to the Great Commission course, I think it was about just over 10 years ago now, uh, it was actually the first time I had been challenged to go out and share my faith with someone. I'd gone through Bible college in the States and I had never actually gone out witnessing, evangelizing, anything like that. Been given opportunities to preach at the Great Commission course, given opportunities to share the gospel. It really gave me the practical skills of, hey, how do we actually get out there and share our faith? How do we actually get out there and engage with the lost? So it's, it's such an important 
tool of the mm -hmm. practical knowledge, not just sitting in a classroom, okay, here's the right thing to know and to debate and discuss, but actually go out there and talk to people who don't know the Lord. Are Many say that's the biggest fear they had was the getting mm -hmm. on the streets and afterwards say it was the greatest blessing. Mm. Uh, to get into streets and share their faith. And for many people, the first time I ever had the chance to lead someone to Christ. And it's it's wonderful to help get out of that comfort zone and to just help people put feet to the faith because I'm afraid most of us are in a comfort zone. It's very important to get out of it. And, and once a person's experienced it, they'll want to keep going back. Mm, absolutely. And there's so much in the, the church nowadays. The men are very sort of... They don't feel challenged. They feel like Christianity is too feminized and there's not enough really call to action. Well, I think part of that is because we're not out evangelizing. We're not actually in the spiritual battle. We're just sort of sitting on the sidelines hoping for something to happen. But we're, we're made for adventure. We're made to get out there. We're made to go and do something. And this is part of it. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And this is how we do it. And this is the tools and the practical application that we're trying to get people to. Is there any uh, final thoughts before we close off our time tonight? Yes. Uh, you know, I've been quite uh, horrified as to how ill-prepared many people are in going into the mission field. And uh, there's no doubt the harvest very large. The workers are far too few. We never have enough workers. Oh, we need more workers. Mm. Everything from librarians to IT people to field workers, missionaries, um, short-term and long-term, one, one needs them all. Uh, but the trouble is that many missionary volunteers entering the field have little training or preparation or warning. And uh, we need to remind people, and that's why, you know, you might think, gee, is this very positive, speaking about someone who died in the field. But that's real. That's that's what happens. Uh, we get malaria. We get tick bite fever. Um, missionaries get sick. Uh, it's mm. Right now we've got a team in Mozambique, and, you know, please pray for a missionary. The, uh, Daniel is... Uh, is quite sick and has been with fever for the last two weeks. So uh, we need to continually remember mission fields are often difficult, dangerous. There's not just distances. Uh, there's not just obstacles to overcome, but there's often exotic tropical diseases. Mm. Uh, and I've come back from the field so sick and gone through battery of tests. And at the end, all I could put was virus, tropical, which my mother as a nurse says means I don't have a clue. Mm. Um, but uh, th there's a lot of weird things out there and uh, but we've got to be willing to go then there are people who don't mind the challenge and are willing to take a risk and who are willing to get sick for Christ if that's necessary yeah. uh, if that's what it takes to reach some people in some of these uh, more inaccessible neglected restricted access areas then uh, what a privilege what a pleasure I mean the Lord suffered for us uh, it's a privilege to suffer for him but I think people need preparation and that's why uh, getting in touch with other missionaries, joining a local mission or evangelistic group, uh, reading missionary biographies, uh, coming to camps and courses, doing courses like The Way of the Master and Evangelism Explosion, Muslim Evangelism Workshops. These are critical. You can't get too much training and preparation. Mm. And uh, you can't get too much experience. And the more experience you get locally in evangelism, the better you'll be in the field. Uh, it's amazing to me how many people want to be a missionary overseas who've never done any evangelism at home. If it doesn't work at home, don't export it. Hmm. Uh, until you've gone across the street to share the gospel, you're not ready to go across the world or across hmm. the border. And so um, I think that's the first step is to get people involved in your local church, your local ministries. And then once you have once you really know evangelism, uh, then it's the time to start making yourself available for cross-cultural evangelism. Hmm. You know, remember, we should be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and the Asmus parts. Jerusalem, where you are. Start where you are. 
family, friends, neighbors. That's a hard mission field mm. already. Uh, Judea, same language, same culture, just geographically but further. Samaria, different culture, different religion. Not too far away. Uttermost parts. Well, now you're crossing all the boundaries. Uh, so that's what we've got to do. But don't forget, you can actually do almost uttermost parts not very far from you. So mm. Go down to your local university. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, just take Cape Town. Mm. We've You can reach Somalians in Cape Town. That's a restricted access area. You can reach people from Pakistan and Saudi mm. Arabia in Cape Town. Mm. Uh, you can go just five minutes away and you can meet people from a completely closed country that's beyond restricted access area mm. where no missionaries allowed and you can reach people from there so uh, don't think you've got to necessarily get a passport and travel across the world to do cross-cultural missions right now at almost any university you've got a wide variety of foreign students so mm. just you know you can uh, i wouldn't say practice because uh, they're real mission field and they're real mm. souls for whom christ died that you need to reach uh, but yes Get experience and get informed. It's so important to read. So uh, I've written books like, for example, The Greatest Century of Missions, Learn from Examples of Excellence, uh, 19 biographies of 19 missionaries of the 19th century. Um, I mean, that's a good place to start. But there's a lot of great missionary biographies. Uh, Operation World, uh, get to evangelistic training programs. If you haven't done EE or Where the Master, go through the training program, a lot of which is available online too. So uh, that's a way to get started. But if you are ready and willing, get in touch with us. We need workers and uh, the Great Commission course can be as close as January this coming year. Hmm. So where would people contact if they want to be a part of the Great Commission course? Write to mission at frontline.org.za. Mission at frontline.org.za or Americans say ZA. And you go on our website, uh, that's www.frontlinemissionsa.org frontlinemissionsa.org is a website. You can look at upcoming events, bottom of the page too, or, or you go to the events straight and take the Great Commission course, or you just email mission at frontline.org.za. If you're on social media, you can find Frontline Fellowship, the sword, the word in Africa badge with a black background. Um, if there's others out there that have the name, but if you see there's not much activity on, it's not the Frontline Fellowship. There's a few others on social media, but you see the sword, the word in Africa, the black background, that's that's our Frontline Fellowship and a lot of activity there. And you can also go and find Great Commission Camps and Courses as a Facebook page. And you'll see quite a lot of pictures and events of previous courses, give you an idea of what's involved. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We hope this has been an encouragement to you. Uh, we hope there are those of you listening tonight who would consider the call that God may have on your life to enter into missions, to actually be trained, be equipped, be prepared to go and and begin learning how you can reach out to those who are lost, both in your culture, but also cross-culturally. And as Jesus told his disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's the real desire of our hearts, is that although we may lose our lives in this life, we will truly find it in eternal life. True life is to know Christ, and so that's what we want to do in this life. Thank you so much for joining us. Good night, and God bless.